0: Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 13 and verses 24 to 37. Chapter 13 and verses 24 to 37. Brothers and sisters, if you would then hear with me the reading of God's Word. But in those days after that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender And puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. As far as the reading of God's word. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we we come to the conclusion or the end of this three-part series in the study of the Olivet Discourse. And we've seen thus far that all, although Jesus here is describing uh, two events in Mark 13, that he doesn't separate them, but he really He intertwines these two events as he, as he answers the questions of the apostles uh, that they uh, present to him based on the fact that he says that the, dest- that the destruction of the temple will come to pass. And if you remember, those, those two questions were this. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And we said in verses 5 to 8, Jesus goes about telling them about things that will happen in general, calamities and trials that will happen, that will happen in general to all of the church over the span of the, of the church age. And he says, people are going to come in my name, saying, I am he, in order to lead you away from me. He says that there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There is going to be earthquakes and famines and nations will rise up against nations. But he says, just know these are the the beginnings of the birth pains. Jesus then turned to verses 9 to 13 where he he tells the apostles specifically things that they themselves are going to have to endure. Remember, he says to them, you're going to be brought before councils. Uh, you are going to be beaten in synagogues. You are going to be brought before governors for my name's sake. He says, brother is going to rise up against brother, children against parents, and deliver, deliver them up to death. He says, you are going to be hated for my name's sake. But he he gives them this encouragement at the end. He says, but whoever endures to the end will be saved. And we've seen, brothers and sisters, that all that Jesus described here occurred during the life of the apostles leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And yet they didn't end there. They continue to persist today, but just as Jesus said they would. Because Jesus says that the end is not at the destruction of the temple, but rather the end will occur at the second coming of Christ after the gospel has been proclaimed to all nations. Then if you remember last week, Jesus then turns the apostles' attention directly upon the destruction of the temple. And he says to them uh, that the destruction of the temple will surely come and they can know that it will come when something like that which occurred in 2nd century B.C. With the, with the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes happens. He says, when something like this occurs, you know that the destruction is coming. And we know what Jesus was describing was that time when the, when the Roman army gathers around Jerusalem and gathers around the temple That is what the people, the Christians living at that time, identified the abomination of desolation with. And we know that because as soon as they see the Roman army gather, as soon as they see the Roman army intent on destroying Jerusalem and the temple, what are we told they do? History tells us that they flee, they they heed Jesus' instructions, and they flee into the mountains. And so there is no real debate. Everything that Jesus said about the destruction of the temple did come to pass. Right, is, is it was brought down to nothing, as the Roman army set it afire, and so that every stone was brought down, not one laid upon it, itself. And now in our text today, Jesus points the apostles' attention to the consummation of the kingdom, which is not concurrent with the destruction of the temple, but rather the consummation of the kingdom that Jesus points us to, is at his second advent, at his, at his second coming, at the, at the end of the age, when Christ will return in the clouds to gather all of his elect saints. And so with this being said today, we're going to look at verses 24 to 37 uh, under three main points. And the three main points are these. So first is going to be Christ's certain return. Christ's certain return. Point two will be Christ's certain words. Christ's certain words. And point three will be Christ's central application. Christ's central application. So point one, Christ's um, Christ's certain return. Please look with me once more, starting in verse twenty four. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now here, brothers and sisters, that we see right at the beginning of verse 24 that word again. That indicator, but. We see that but which indicates to us that Jesus is contrasting what He just said to what He is going to say. Right, He had just finished talking about the destruction of the temple and now he is shifting his focus upon something else. But I want us to see that it's not only that but that displays to us that he is shifting his focus, but also the very contents of what he says here in verses 24 to 27 27 indicate to us that he is shifting his focus. Because look at what he is describing. Last week, Jesus described earthly signs about earthly events. But this week, what do we see? He is now describing cosmic signs about some culminating heavenly event that will occur. Right? Even that phrase, but in those days, right? that's an eschatological phrase that we find in the Old Testament. If you remember in the very first sermon that we gave in the series, we quoted from the, uh, from the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And in verse 29, we're told this, Even on the male and female servants, in those days, I will pour my spirit upon. And so, in those days has eschatological significance. And so, in those days, after that tribulation, understand it's not during the tribulation. It's not at the tribulation. He says, after the tribulation, right? Christ is going to come in the clouds. He's saying after that foreordained tribulation that the church must suffer and endure over the course of the church age, then I will come in the clouds. In those days, right, something that was future, something in those days after what took place in verses 5 to 23. And so then we have to ask, what are the cosmic signs, though, of this cosmic event? Well, what does Jesus say? The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from heaven. The powers in the heaven will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he's going to send the angels out to gather the elect from the four winds of the earth to the ends of heaven. In Matthew's parallel account of this text, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, he includes that all the nations in the earth will mourn as well when they see Jesus return. And so I want you to see, do you see that we go from local to worldwide? We go from discussing local events about the destruction of the temple last week to now talking about things that the whole world is going to see and going to experience. And we know here that Jesus is describing the uh, the second coming and not the destruction of the temple because what Jesus says coincides with what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16, Paul says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. See, brothers and sisters, when Christ returns, all people are going to recognize His deity. Right, he's going to come commanding the angels and gathering the saints that coming in the clouds denotes for us that he's going to come visibly, right, in open glory and majesty as he sets all things in order, as he causes every knee to kneel before him. And as He judges the nations in righteousness. right At Jesus' second coming, the divine attributes of Jesus will be beautifully arrayed for all to see in the world. But why does Jesus tell them this? Why does, why does He inform them of these things? Well, because Jesus is well aware that they will be scoffers in their day and in all of our days leading up to the return of Christ. Right? This is what Peter tells us. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4, that there will be scoffers who say, where is the promise of His coming? Where is the Lord? I thought He was going to return, Christian. That is what people are going to say. And so Jesus gives us these words. He gives the apostles these words to ensure them of the certainty of His return. Likewise, He gives them these words because what does He say to them before? He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so He's given them these words to comfort them as well. He's he's saying, I know that there's going to be much trouble and tribulation in the world, but Christian, you have hope. Don't give up hope. There will be much tribulation in the world, but for the Christian, it will end with a glorious result. And so these words from Christ to the apostles, and these words from Christ to us, ought to be words that, that, that bring us great encouragement in this world. These words ought to encourage us mightily. Especially in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. Because what Jesus is saying to us is that when He returns at His second coming, as believers, we will exchange our crosses for our crowns. That is what Jesus is saying. When He returns, we are going to exchange the cross for the crown. When Christ returns, He will not come again lowly. When Christ returns, He will not come to be beaten or mocked or spat at. When Christ returns, He will not come in veiled glory. But when Christ comes, He will come openly. And He will come to bring every knee down. And He will come to reveal His truth. And He will come with His glory unveiled. And He will come in vindication of Himself And it's at that time the the scoffers will scoff no more. For it's at that time that our Lord will manifest His wrath upon them as He sends them and casts them into eternal hellfire. But brothers and sisters, we must understand that the day of judgment for the ungodly ought not to be a day of terror for the the righteous, for those who have been made right in Christ. For in those days, the, the ungodly will... Will mourn, we are told, right? The nations will mourn when they see Christ, but the, the godly, when we see Christ return, we ought to rejoice. We ought to rejoice, for when Christ returns, he is going to bring about the completion of our salvation, right? When Christ returns, it will be the very worst of time for the sinner, but it will be the very best of time for the saint. And so we see that Jesus here describes his certain return. And so the question then for us today is, are you ready for that return? Right? Are you ready to receive Christ when He returns? Or better yet, are you ready to be received by Christ in the clouds when He returns? Right? When Christ returns, are you going to be disappointed? Or is that going to cause within your soul the, the greatest amount of delight? Right? Would you say, wait, wait, Lord, let me go back. There are things I have to finish yet. Or when you behold Him coming in glory, will you be like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration who forgot about everything else that was going on in the world and was just captivated by the glory of His Savior, Mediator, and King? It's something for us all to, to think about today. Now this takes us then, brothers and sisters, to point number two, which is Christ's certain words. Look with me, starting in verse 28, please. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now here we we return to uh, the fig tree. The fig tree is something that all of us have become familiar with. As uh, we recall in chapter 11, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And all that was said about the fig tree then is true about the, the fig tree in our text today. We, we, we said last time when we looked at uh, chapter 11 that in the springtime, the, the leaves would blossom and it would be a sign then that, that fruit was going to begin to grow and that fruit would be, that fruit would be ripe for the picking come summertime. And so this is what Jesus is saying here. He says, so when you see the fig tree put out, puts out its leaves, it's a sign that the summer is near. So also, so here's the comparison he's making to the, the fig tree giving out leaves which tells you that the summer is near. He's saying, so it is with these things that I'm telling you, right? So it is when, when these things happen, you know that, that it is near, the time is near, that he is at the gates. Right? Jesus goes on then to say, truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Right? Here, starting in verse 28, Jesus returns to talking about the destruction of the temple. Right? He's telling them, discern the times. Observe what's going on in Jerusalem. Know when these things will take place. And I think this is helpful in understanding then what these things that Jesus is describing is. Because in verse 28 and 29, he speaks about these things, but what are these things? What are these things referred to that must take place during the lifetime of the saints? Do they refer back to what we just read in verses 24 to 27 in the return of Christ? Because if they do, then then what happens? Then then Jesus failed in his prediction because he, he did not return in the generation or in the lifetime of the apostles. And so obviously our Lord does not fail in what He said. So we have to ask then, what does He mean when He says that all these things must take place in the generation of the apostles? Well, one way that many people take these things is in reference to all that occurs between verses 5 and 23, which does not include then what we just looked at, verses 24 to 27. So that it is very true. All these things that Jesus described in verses 5 to 23 did take place. That is what many people take it as. And I think that's, that's quite possible. Uh, a lot of people think just because verses 20 and 29 come after 24 to 27, that these things must refer to everything that comes before it. But that isn't necessarily so. Right? And think about this. Think about how this conversation even began. It began with Jesus saying that the temple was going to be destroyed. What was the apostles' response? Tell us when these things will happen. Right? So they want to know about the destruction of the temple. And it's in verses 5 to 23 we've said that Jesus details what is going to happen leading up to and including the destruction of the temple. Which is why Jesus says, look at the end of verse 23. But be on guard... I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus is just saying here, at the end of verse 23, I've just now told you about all the things that I've described. And so it could be safe to say then that, that in verses 28 and 29, when he says all these things must occur in this generation, that he is talking about all those things through verses 5 to 23, and not our text today in verses 24 to 27. But what I want us to see, though, although that may be true, is that there is absolutely no trouble for the historic Reformed amillennial position if all those things includes verses 24 to 27. And I actually do think, in a sense, all these things includes verses 24 to 27. Now, hear me out. Hear hear what I mean by this. I don't want to shock anyone here today. So here what the prophet Isaiah describes as he describes the judgment that is going to befall Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 and 10. Okay. We read this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now, brothers and sisters, Babylon was destroyed. But I want you to see the cosmic figurative language there describing the destruction of Babylon. It It is language that emphasizes the magnitude of this great event that was going to occur. And so it shouldn't frighten us that if these things that Jesus is talking about in verses 20 and 29 include what we've just read in verses 24 to 27. Because the destruction of the temple is a mini picture of the destruction that Jesus is going to bring when he returns on the clouds at the end. Right? Jesus, through the Roman army, came upon Israel in judgment, destroying them. Destroying what was central to them. Right? He, he wiped out that which was central to the, to the Israelites, the, the temple. And in doing so, he, he wiped away all their ceremonial laws and their sacrifices. And as he, as he did that, as he destroyed the temple, right, through the Roman army, he is also then delivering the church from those types and shadows which held them into bondage in the oppression of the Jews. Right? But don't fail to realize or recognize that although what Jesus says in verses 24 to 27 typically did happen in the destruction of the temple, that it did not exhaustively, or did not completely fulfill what Jesus describes, and it couldn't, brothers and sisters, because that's not what types do, right? Types do not, types don't bring the complete fulfillment, right? They always fall short of the complete fulfillment. And so, what happened at 70 A.D. in the destruction of the temple, it was a type of the end of the world, but it wasn't the end of the world, right? It was far from the end. And the cosmic upheaval that will occur when Christ returns is is going to be far greater than the upheaval that the Israelites experienced at the fall of Jerusalem. For when Christ returns, Peter tells us that the heavens will be burned up with fire and dissolved and we will have a a new heavens and a a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And brothers and sisters, we all know this, that that day is not today. And so there remains a, a greater fulfillment of what Jesus describes that is yet to occur. The destruction of the temple is is simply a a mini picture of what will occur. It is a a type which is waiting for its anti-type, for for Christ to return. And we know, as we pointed out many times, that Jesus was 100% accurate in everything he said. Right, The temple was destroyed. The abomination of desolation did happen. When the Christians seen it, they did flee to the mountains. This is why he can say then in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And you know why Jesus' words will not pass away? Because they are the words of God. They are the words of the one who has foreordained all things and he is bringing all things to pass as he has purposed them to to come about. You see, to the human eye, Many believe that Jesus has failed because Jesus has not yet returned. But we know, brothers and sisters, that, that His Word endures forever. His Word is an abiding Word. And it will abide long after the world is dissolved by fire. Right? This world, many people in this world see this world as, as strong and stable. But what Jesus is telling us here is that no, it's not the world that's strong and stable. It's My words that are strong and stable. Right? It's, it's, it's My Word that has brought all the elements to exist and to be. And so it is, it is God's Word that we are to believe as, as Jesus invests those words that He speaks with the highest dignity and authority as they come from the eternally begotten Son of God. In Psalm 102, verses 25-27, to 27, we read this, "...of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens as they are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment." You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us learn not to doubt God. Right? Let us learn not to allow unbelievers to cause us to doubt God. Right? But to believe in His Word and to be assured that His Word is true and will come to pass. And one way that we do that is by looking at what happened in the destruction of the temple. Right? There in the destruction, it is a, it is a token. It's a pledge to God, uh, from God to us. Right? He says, you see how my word was true. As I said, the temple would be destroyed, and it was. So too will my word be when I told you that I will return. Truly, I will return, for my word is true. It will not pass away. It will not fade away. It will not go away. This then leads us, brothers and sisters, into our third and final point which is Christ's central application. Look with me then at verses 32 to 37. Verses 32 to 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right Here, brothers and sisters, uh, the Lord shifts back to talking about his, his second advent, His return. We see that word again. But, right, but, And what does he say? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not the angels, not the Son, but only the Father knows. Now herein lies a a truly important statement that I want us all to recognize, which really verifies uh, what it is that we've been trying to say over the course of these three sermons. We've said that woven into this one discourse is two events. Woven into this one discourse is two events and here in verse 32, Jesus demonstrates the veracity of that claim that we have made. In verse 32 where he says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Right? If this text, if Mark 13 in total, is addressing the destruction of the temple, then that's not true. Right? Then we all know exactly when Christ is going to return. It would have been at the destruction of the temple. But he says no one knows that day or that hour when he will return. Right? Demonstrating that he is not talking about just one thing here in Mark 13. He is talking about two. And that second event is the return of Christ. For when Christ returns, he will come like a thief in the night. When Christ returns, he will come unexpectedly. No one will be able to say, there Christ is, or, or there he is. Because no one will know. Right? This is very different from the, how the destruction of Jerusalem It's explained to us in Mark 13, is it not? Jesus knows precisely when the destruction is going to happen. He tells them, it's going to happen within your generation. A generation is about 40 years. It happened. If Jesus dies in A.D. 33, it happens in 70 A.D., 37 years later. Jesus tells them exactly when it's going to happen, within your generation. He tells them exactly when they can know it's about to happen. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, you know the end is near. Jesus very precisely tells them when it is. But of that day and of that hour when Christ returns, no one knows. You can't say this is the generation He is going to come back. No one is able to predict it. This is how we know for certain that what Jesus is describing here is not one event, but two events here. He's describing two things in Mark 13. And brothers and sisters, it's it's most beneficial for you and for I and for all believers everywhere to not know when Christ is going to return. Right? We, we are a people who oftentimes, we don't, we don't like surprises. Right? We want to know everything that's going to happen. But I want you to see that it is beneficial for us that we don't know when Christ returns. And do you know why that is. So that we always stay on guard. So, we all, so that we always stay on guard. It's that, it's that lack of knowing when He returns that keeps us on our toes and that keeps us alert. Just imagine if we knew the exact precise moment Christ was going to return. You could just imagine what would happen. You would have people probably going, saying, I'm going to live out my life in in all sorts of sin and unrighteousness. And the the day before he returns, I'm going to ask for repentance and place my faith in Christ. And I'm going to live obediently for that day until he returns. Or you're going to have lax Christian living as well. If someone goes, well, I know Christ is coming back uh, 200 years from now. I know I won't be living at that time. So why stay alert? Right? Why, why be ready? Why be on guard? And so that might lead to, to sluggish Christian living. right? And so it's, it's most beneficial for us to not know when Christ is going to return. Because if if you knew that Christ was returning in your own lifetime, right? if I knew Christ was returning at the end of this month, well, then what might I do? I might... Quit my job. I might go sell all I have and go stare in the sky and, and wait for the Lord to return like the, those in Thessalonica were doing that Paul scolded them for. He scolded them in, 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 second, in second Thessalonians, uh, in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, for quitting their jobs and for being idle and for just waiting around for the Lord's return. And so telling us when he will return is counterintuitive Uh, to his command for us to to stay awake, to, to keep awake, to be on guard. And so in fact, what does Jesus tell us he wants us to do as we are unaware of when he is going to return? What is it that he wants his people to do? Well, what does he say in verses 34 and 35? It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Right? Jesus is the Master who went away in this in this text here. And He has left us all with work to do. And so what Jesus is saying to us is that while He is away, you are not to just quit your job and look up to the sky, to, to the sky and wait for our Lord's return. But rather He says, do the work I have given you to do until I return. Right? He's saying, if your work is outside the home, then make sure that you be found doing that work when I return. If your work is inside the home, make sure that you be found faithful in that work when I return. Make sure you are, or you are not lazy, you are not being idle, but you will be found doing what I, the work that I have given you to do. Right? As His church, when He returns, you have to find us doing the things that He has called His church to do, which is to proclaim His name until He returns. Right? As members of this church, you are to adorn the Gospel in your life, in public, in private, at home, at work, until the Lord returns. This is how the Lord is telling us we are to live our lives. And just think about if if all Christians thought and lived like this, how much greater our witness would be in this world. Right? We wouldn't be involved in such meaningless and frivolous things, but we would find ourselves constantly in the Word of God. We'd find ourselves constantly in prayer, right? instructing and teaching our kids we find ourselves at church, we would be sure that we stayed on top of all of the spiritual exercises that God has given us, knowing that He could return at any time. What Jesus is telling His church here is that we are to be about our Master's business until He returns. But I think sadly for so many who identify as Christians, uh, the allurements of this world are quite intoxicating. And I think for many, when Christ returns, it's going to end in, in shame and embarrassment. But let that not be so with us, brothers and sisters. Right? For if you belong to Christ, you belong to his spiritual kingdom. Right? A kingdom whose end is not this world. Right? That is not why Christ came and died, so that you stay here the rest of your life. He came and died, gave himself up for you, that he might return to prepare, to prepare a place for you. So that when he returns, we might be where he is. That we might experience and and, and gain possession of that inheritance that He died for us to possess. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask, if you knew that Christ was going to return tomorrow morning, how would you live out your final day? If you knew Christ was returning tomorrow morning, how would you live out your final day? Hopefully we'd be doing those things that we said in the Word, in prayer, teaching your children, in church on Sunday. Doing, being about your your master's business. Well, brothers and sisters, I I want I want you to understand that this is what Jesus here in the text is challenging us to live like. This is how he is challenging us to live each and every day, to live today, to live tomorrow, to live every day in the future as if he was about to return the very next day. That is how we are to live. And so the question is, will you? Right? Will you heed your master's commands? This is a command that that protects us from sin. This is a a command that helps to preserve us in the faith. These are commands that Jesus gives unto His church to encourage us to live the Christian life until the end with all vigilance. I hope all of us here are going to heed our Savior's words that when He returns, we will not have to to blush in shame because He finds us being spiritually lazy when He returns that He finds us spiritually asleep. Jesus' words likewise then ought to provide motivation for His church. Right? Motivation for us to maintain a close walk with the Lord, knowing that He could return at any moment. And at the same time, these words ought to cause us to examine ourselves. Right? Do I Am I maintaining this close relationship with the Lord that when He returns, I will be ready for it? And if the answer is no, then brothers and sisters, resolve to get ready for it. And you do that by turning to the Lord in prayer, right? asking Him to strengthen you until that day that you might heed what he, what he has instructed us here in our text today. And yet, brothers and sisters, until that great day when He returns, we, we all need to be a prayerful people that we would not tire, but that we likewise would be obedient to our, our Savior's command and that each one of us here today would stay awake. And So please, I ask that you would bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and what an encouragement it is to the saints as You remind us of what manner of living we ought to be engaged in in this life. That we are not to be spiritually lazy or asleep, but we are to 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 remain sober. We are to remain alert and awake. Uh, We are to... uh, Always be prepared for the coming of our Lord, and so, Lord, we ask that you would that you would help to remind us that this day, and that we would resolve moving forward to to live in this manner as if you could return at any moment. Lord, we likewise confess our sin where we have fallen short in becoming spiritual, uh, spiritually lazy and lethargic, and we ask, Lord, for your strength to strengthen us uh, that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to you until the Savior returns. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.